Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking cost of living crisis, innovation, and industrial action. It's all coming up. The, the, the problem I have is that there has been so much talk about innovation from so many different governments. The central thing we never develop is a stable, long-term, sustainable model that allows people to build up good working practices, um, build up expertise, build up long-term strategic partnerships. There's too much chopping and changing. Every new administration thinks it's got the answer, but the governments that do, or the countries that do it well, tend to give it time. Welcome to The Wookie Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wookie's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and joining me to unravel the tangled web of higher education this week, three fabulous guests as always. In London at a conference, it's Mita Jamdar, Partner and Head of Education at Shakespeare Martineau. Smita, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, my highlight of the week is attending the Advanced HE Governance Conference, subject very close to my heart and really important work that they're doing there. Super. And in his HQ, it's Richard Bramner, director of the UPP Foundation. Uh, Richard, your heart of the week, please. Uh, well, I think most listeners will probably agree that the World Cup shouldn't be taking place in Qatar, but those that like football still probably are watching the World Cup and enjoying it. And so on Monday at UPP Towers, we all had pizza and watched England beat around 6-2, which was fun. Uh, and in Exeter, it's Sunday, Blake. Walkie's associated to Sunday, your heart of the week, please. Um, my higher of the week is we've got SLOS uh, Secret Life students coming up uh, early next year um, and this week we are we're making lots of plans and discussions around that and getting ready. Right, we start the week with the cost of living crisis and its effect on students. Mita, talk us through uh, the latest. I, I mean, what, what, we've, what we've got today is some statistics which are probably unsurprising but nonetheless deeply depressing about the impact of the cost of living crisis on students who in many ways are the kind of forgotten demographic when it comes to any sort of policy um, considerations. But what we have heard from the Office of National Statistics um, is that based on data from the end of October and the start of November, a full 50% of students felt they had financial difficulty and more than three quarters were concerned that the rising cost of living could affect how well they do in their studies. And that is a really very disturbing um, percentage to be having those sorts of uh, concerns. Um, a lot of them are taking on new debt, one in four, uh, to try to respond to the cost of living. And two thirds of those who've taken on the new debt have done so because the student loan wasn't enough to support their living costs. And that, again, I think points to a question of the, the sort of sustainability of the current model. Um, even thinking about where they're getting this additional financial support from, uh, you have uh, nearly 30% who say family can't give any more. Um, so they're obviously going to be going into debt with other people and, and a certain number who are reporting turning to, you know, deeply unattractive and possibly illegal uh, activities such as selling drugs, sex work and stealing. Some of those are definitely illegal, I should say, as a lawyer rather than possibly. 
so uh, I think the other the other aspect that that Wonky has picked up on, and 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 I think is good, is looking at the support that universities are already making available. But the statistics suggest that perhaps enough students aren't aware of that support. So I think there's a lot there for the sector to reflect on, um, and hopefully we can pick some of that up in the discussion. Right. So there's lots here in the ONS data. Um, I think Smitty, you're right. The, the, one of the, the kind of the starkest things is this 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 idea that students are taking out new debt on a on a um, on a much larger scale than we understood before. Um, Richard, what would your advice be uh, to universities? Um, trying to navigate this issue, on, particularly on when it comes to financial support. Um, thanks, Mark. Well, I think obviously the sector needs to do as much as it can, and you know Jim has set out in on Wonky um, some examples of what what the sector is doing well, and he's also, I think, doing a really important public service in setting out the the state of the nation as it is for for students in terms of the cost of living crisis, um, uh, in terms of pressure on government. But the thing is, I don't think that this issue can be resolved unless there is some form of government intervention to increase maintenance support for students, which I'm pretty sure all of our listeners would support. And I think what the ONS figures really show, and I think is quite troubling for the sector in certain ways, two things. A, the sort of corrosive nature of the cost of living crisis to every aspect of the student experience um, across whether it's teaching and learning, graduate outcomes, um, just the ability to um, uh, to live and learn effectively. Um, but, um, and I think what it really shows is the inequality there. So, so that, you know, as it says, students are reporting that they're experiencing major or minor financial difficulties, had worse scores on all four well-being measures than those who were comf- comfortably well off or managing well enough. So, you know, obvious point here, but, but, you know, this isn't a crisis equally shared and there does need some targeted in- intervention. Um, but I think that the, the, the issue that we are facing um, as a sector is one of the other things that we saw is that only 1% of students in this plan to pause their course and resume it next year, while 2% are planning to change from classroom and remote learning and only 6% are planning to move back to their family home and commute to university from there. And my issue for that this is, and, and the concern for our sector is, if you're the government looking at every single ask on your, uh, in terms of the public finances at the moment, um, given the crisis that, 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 that we're in, does that give you a compelling enough reason um, in terms of continuation and dropout rates for them to prioritise our sector? And so I think we need to be really effective at, at the way that we are, you know, we're positioning our ask um, to government that it's beyond dropout rates and continuation. It's actually about how their opportunities after they finish university is going to be squeezed and how this affects particular groups of students. Yeah. I, I mean, you're surely right on a kind of policy level. The, the sad truth is, though, I mean, different bits of the government doesn't, don't talk to each other in, in such a way, do they? Um, no. And, and we saw, you know, there's a really interesting piece, I think, on Conservative Home this week. Um, from Paul Goodman, the editor, um, and it's actually on housing policy and just how this current government has a complete blind spot for all, for, for young people across sort of public policy realm. And, you know, it's, uh, and, and this is where our sector is facing a bit of a crunch in this sense. You know, this government doesn't have an offer for young people that it needs to have. And, and it's going to, there are going to be consequences for us and for them unless they can shift that. So, Sunday, can, can, you add a bit of, um, sort of an anecdote to this. So, I mean, you know, we know that the data shows that students are saying that they, um, are turning to things like, uh, selling drugs, sex work, crime and in other, in other ways to help 
pay for um, cost of living. Um, does that though? Does that does that back up what you hear students actually doing? And and kind of is that is that a basket of things that's kind of really fair to put in put all together? Or is there something else going on here about how students are trying to cope with what's going on? Sure. I mean, I think obviously those are quite sort of extreme examples. Um, while the sort of number of students selling drugs and doing sex work has or what, the number of students declaring that they're doing doing uh, sex work and, and selling drugs has gone up. Um, it's really hard to get like an accurate and a true picture of this just because of you know, the multitude of reasons why someone wouldn't want to tell their institution that they're doing this. Um, but I actually think that uh, there's a sort of another issue within this and that's not necessarily that more students are engaged in this type of activity, but actually the students that were already engaging in that type of activity are going to be making even more um, sort of risky decisions uh, around that sort of behaviour. So, for example, if if indeed more students are going into sex work, the market is oversaturated. What happens is students then start to offer more risky services, perhaps at a lower price, perhaps seeing clients at a higher rate. Uh, students who are selling drugs might be... Um, dealing with like potentially more dangerous individuals um so it's not it's not just that the number of students uh engaged in this type of behavior is going up but it's that the students who are already doing it and who are already quite vulnerable are now even more so vulnerable um and actually it's not just things like sex works and drug drug selling um there are actually lots of types of work where students may be taken on longer hours and in in more difficult conditions um sex work and drug taking obviously quite salacious um examples but there are lots of uh types of works that students say so for example hospitality work is quite uh widely unregulated and it might be that students are taking cash in hand jobs longer hours maybe not necessarily at a wage that's legal (laughs) um so yeah it's a really really difficult situation obviously these are the headlines but there's lots of ways in which students will be earning money that could be detrimental to them um i think this kind of highlights the very different experience of students across the country in terms of the impact the precarity of one nature or another has on their ability to enjoy the experience take full advantage of the experience and what that then means for things like student outcomes not just dropouts but continuation um progression etc and we do we really need to kind of as a sector recognize that we're not probably cognizant enough of those very personal circumstances and what that is meaning for an increasing number of people in terms of how they engage with, with higher education. And so, you know, we've talked about, um, uh, the government stepping in. The other universities themselves obviously need to think about extenuating circumstances. I know Jim's article from earlier this month picked up that some universities have said, okay, uh, you know, financial distress can be an extenuating circumstance. Um, but the OFS maybe also needs to think about how it's assessing continuation, progression, etc. in a time when for some students it's just becoming nigh on impossible um, to to participate as fully as they would want and, and, and so on. So I think there's a lot behind this that's after we get through the immediate issue of how do we help people in the here and now, what is the longer term impact on their on their um, experience? Um, I think, sorry, I, I think Smith is spot on there about participation because we know 
from all the evidence that certain groups of students are more likely to face issues around loneliness. And we know that some issues, some groups of students are less likely to fully participate in the student experience to capitalise on you know, what we might call social capital opportunities from co-curricular or extracurricular activities. And, um, you know, this crisis is only going to exacerbate that particular issue. And it's why, you know, as we said in the Student Futures Commission, it's so important to embed some of that activity where students can create relationships and, and develop skills and, and and so forth outside of the curriculum that we bring it into the curriculum and it's effective and accredited and adds value to to what they're studying um, i know that's a slightly different topic but i think this sort of um, means that it's even more important uh, than it was before i think that's right i mean i, I mean sunday the, the belonging research backed that up didn't it but the bottom line is that unless students can afford to be at university then you kind of talk about belonging is sort of a bit further downstream sure and it, do you know what it's not it's not just in like everyone's mind automatically goes to that sort of extracurricular social social capital um, element of the student experience. And Richard is right to point that out. Um, but in the belonging research, lots of stuff came up around um, access to learning resources and like affordability. And it came up in ways which I didn't necessarily think about before. So for example, a medical student was writing that um, he would be on placement with other students and they would sort of all whip out an iPad and do their notes there and then. He had to sort of write it down by hand and then go back and type up his notes on his family computer at home. And that impacted his sense of belonging because he was like, why am I doing this differently to everyone else? And it also um, decreased his academic confidence because he was thinking, well, everyone else is already at an advantage to me. I'm already having to spend extra time doing something that others can do because they can afford it um so yeah it's it, it really does and i think the other thing is that you know in the blogging research we had we had four different sort of foundations of blogging that made up four different sort of chapters and financial insecurity uh ran through every single one of them it was like one of the common themes that linked them all together um so yeah you know peer, peer networks accessibility just everything is is underpinned by this and i think the other thing that i always mention to uh, i was at a conference the other day talking to some uh, a university uh, senior management team and i was saying that one of the things that's really difficult to understand around financial precarity is it's not just a case of you know everyone's always talking about um electricity bills and gas bills at the moment um with the cost of living but actually when you're when you're in a financially stressful situation there's like hundreds of i call them like micro stresses or nano stresses that are around not being able to afford um to, to study so it's waking up and can i get can i get the bus to campus or am i going to have to do the 20 minute walk with all my books in my bag it's okay, everyone else is just grabbing lunch at the prep next to the library, but I may, I might have to go a bit further and get a meal deal from Tesco's. It's all these kind of like micro decisions that you have to make around your financial situation, which it's until you actually, it's almost impossible to ever truly understand what it's like to be a student in that, in that sort of financial position. And not to mention students who don't have financial support families um, as well. So, and again, I don't have a sort of magic wand for this. All, all I can really say, and I, I feel like I, I use this as a bit of a panacea really, but like you have to talk to students and you have to talk to them in a way and I can't, I don't know how to get this right myself, but there has to be a way that we talk about financial sort of stresses 
that aren't in a way that that aren't stigmatizing because I think it's still stigmatizing to say I can't afford the food options that are on campus or I can't afford to get transport into my lectures like that's a really really difficult situation to be in and one of the reasons that students turn to things like sex work and drug taking contrary to the traditional narrative that they're victims it's actually because they desperately want to maintain a sense of autonomy they want to maintain like the ability to provide for themselves um which again when we're dealing with students who are engaging in that kind of behavior it's really important that we don't put a prerequisite on them to disengage from that behavior before they get support because if you tell the student they need to disengage they're going to turn away from access and support because they don't want to disengage because they want to maintain their independence right let's see who's been blogging for us this week my name is Alex Favier. I'm the Director of Global Reputation and Relations at the University of Nottingham and the Programme Director of a pilot uh, in the Midlands looking at the role of universities in trade and investment. Today on the site, I've been writing about the role of universities and foreign direct investment into R&D in particular. Uh, the piece highlights some of the work that we've begun uh, in the region, exploring uh, what this means and why universities should care more about it. We've looked at, one, uh, what foreign direct investment into university knowledge exchange and research activity looks like. We talked about the three categories of this space, so technology, innovation, science, parks and tenants from overseas companies, um, moving on to university property, um, linked to wet labs or specific sectors. We've talked about the research base, uh, so a lot of direct funding from international sources and industry into the UK uh, research base, things like clinical trials or contract research or medical technology, devices, etc. And we've also looked at commercialisation, so equity, spin-outs, exits, uh, licences, patents, etc. We also have um, highlighted uh, in the piece and the work we've done in the region about the potential civic role of universities turning their global connections and leveraging them to help what is a significant economic issue for local leaders, but also for the UK government. Um, So uh, a few examples in the piece um, have been highlighted from the Midlands and we're working uh, with partners in government and in the sector and in the higher education policy environment to try and figure out what this looks like more generally and hopefully develop a national strategy towards foreign direct investment into R&D. Right, the Prime Minister this week has been talking about innovation being at the heart of his government's agenda. Sunday, walk us through it. Rishi Sunak said on Monday in a speech to the CBI, which is the Confederation of British Industry, that innovation would be at the heart of his governing agenda and Brexit freedoms uh, will allow for the most pro-innovation regulatory environment in the world. Um Accompanying this was the announcement of an almost £500 million uh, funding for UK's research um, sector to mitigate the increasing pressure caused by Horizon Europe non-association, um, which we assume is another one of the Brexit freedoms Sunak is referring to. Um, of this half a billion, £100 million is for QR funding for English universities, and there is also just over £7 million each for both the UKRI World Class Labs Fund and Research Capital Investment Fund. Um, the announcement referred to additional funding for the devolved administrations understood to be in the region of tens of millions of pounds. And on Wednesday, University Scotland insisted that this money should be ring-fenced by the Scottish Government for universities, noting uh, the plunging investment in research in Scotland. 
Um, and then on the site, uh, Tim Fannon and David Marlow um, have been arguing this week that the government's appreciation of the importance of research development and innovation in driving up the country's long term growth rates is welcome. But that making it work at a local level, which is what the government does intend to do, um, still needs thinking about much more carefully. Right. So it's kind of good news, isn't it, Richard, that um, Rishi Sunak is talking about innovation um, a lot more? Yeah, no. Um, it is good news. And I think um, whilst he didn't actually say the words levelling up in his speech, there does seem to be, I suppose, in this in this part of the, of our sector, more of a continuation of the sort of Boris Johnson agenda than, than the sort of Liz Truss interregnum. Um, and clearly there was a recognition, I think, in the awesome statement, wasn't there, of, of the role that universities can play in revitalising certain uh, places and, and, and what they might, what, what we lazily call left behind towns and, and so forth. Um, so that is good news. There's obviously a good challenge. I thought that piece around sort of the place-based element of R&D on Wonky was really, really fascinating, actually. And it does go to the heart of what we talked about, I suppose, a few years ago at the Civic University Commission around making sure all of your activity, in this case R&D, is hooked into the needs of its place and having sort of a really robust understanding through data analysis, through stakeholder engagement, through understanding what the local population wants of, of what that those needs of the place rather than what is the predilections of the university, what has, has we, what have we always done and so forth. Actually hooking our R&D strategy around, you know, what is needed by our partners is, is a much diff- more sort of nuanced and different conversation than what we've always done and the sort of incidental benefit that R&D can bring to a region. Smita, at risk of, you know, triggering you on, on your, uh, you know, pet pet issue, which, you know, I agree with you most, most of the time on, but, um, you know, the, the the government is framing this as, as kind of uh, a consequence of our Brexit freedoms, um, and um, to, to you know that, that that's going to allow for um, a more pro innovation economy. Um, do you think that stacks up? Of course, it doesn't stack up. I mean, it's complete twaddle to link this to Brexit freedoms. I absolutely agree with. Um, uh, Richard and uh, you know the Prime Minister that it's it's important that we focus on innovation and anything that can be done to stimulate it, it, it you know is fantastic. I'm not currently seeing anything that we couldn't have done whilst we were in the EU if we really wanted to. And some of the stuff that they're trying to replicate now is stuff that would have been funded by um, EU money. But let's not get hung up about Brexit, which I know is supremely ironic coming from me as a person who's not yet moved on in the slightest. But never mind um, the. The, the the problem I have is that there has been so much talk about innovation from so many different governments, uh, but the central thing we never develop is a stable, long-term, sustainable model that allows people to build up good working practices, um, build up expertise, build up long-term strategic partnerships. There's too much chopping and changing. Every new administration thinks it's got the answer, but the governments that do or the countries that do it well tend to give it time. Um, and what we don't need in innovation is more innovation policy. We just need space for the actors, the different constituent people who actually innovate to have the freedom to do it. And to not see universities as a key part of that, as, you know, sometimes the commentary is so much around, well, this is, you know, employers, we're going to put everything in the hands of businesses. Unless you recognise the role that universities already play in the innovation ecosystem and the value they bring to it and the fact that you know, businesses would be far better off working with them rather than trying to do stuff entirely on their own, 
you're never going to get a, 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 the real value that, that a good innovation ecosystem can deliver. And that's what depresses me. I'm, you know, I was surprised when it was framed as it's great to see they're interested in innovation. Every government, as long as I can remember being interested in politics, has claimed to be interested in innovation, but they've never quite been able to trust the key players enough to to give them time to deliver what they could deliver does that make mm. sense mm. yeah yeah i mean also i mean a lot of money is needed as well right yes absolutely i mean you can tinker around at the edges you can put bits and pieces here but if we have an innovation problem we need to invest heavily in it i mean this is back to where leveling up cannot just be a bunch of tweaks if we're really serious about it it needs mega investment in infrastructure in our, in in r&d and innovation in skills in all those things and i know that government's got their hands tied at the moment because of the state of public finances and so we are kind of making do and mending a bit but ultimately if we want to make a step change it's going to take some real money mm. richard how do universities position themselves then as part of this answer um, I, th- I think obviously universities need to position themselves as part of the solution and work in partnership with whichever government's in power around their priorities. Um, what I would say with the glass half full, you know, um, compared to what Smith was just saying, um, I, I, you know, I do see that whilst there's obviously difficulties when there's a change of government in terms of their own priorities and sort of their rhetoric and how they fiddle with things. I think if you see, you know, and there are clearly differences between, let's say, a Michael Gove and a Lisa Nandy, but I do, there is a continuation here in that both parties are focused on this agenda in some capacity. Andy Haldane is now advising Lisa Nandy, which I think is really interesting. Um, and, you know, my glass half full nature is that I think that there will be, you know, whatever it's called, there is going to be a focus on this sort of inequality between and within regions for the foreseeable future. And universities have got to sort of be, got to be a big player in, in helping to solve some of these issues, whether it's sort of the, um, um, the, the sort of, uh, the, the, the issues around pride of place that you might get in, in a certain community or the sort of more bigger, longer term infrastructure issues that, that, that sort of regions and, and cities are facing. So you can read more about all of that, uh, in the show notes. Our colleague James Coe has been through Rishi Sunak's speech with a fine tooth comb and sets out what it all means. And now the hidden history of higher education with Mike Rackson. The end of the binary line, the, the d- divide between the uh, the autonomous sector of universities and the public sector of uh, higher education institutions comes in two chunks. Um, one at the end of the 80s and one at the beginning of the 90s. The first part is that um, Margaret Thatcher is persuaded that the polytechnic should be incorporated, i.e. they should be taken out of the local authority control. So one of the complaints all the way from the start of the process from polytechnic directors is that they are trapped in a layer of bureaucracy uh, driven by the local authorities. Um, to start with, there are discussions about how, how much money a polytechnic could spend on its own. Is it £100 or is it £200 without having to go and get... You know, the local authorities control so they're seen as a department of local authority um and that heritage continues. So you know, you, the local government pension scheme that um, is uh, provided to uh, staff in uh, uh, post-92 institutions is, is part of that heritage. But at the point, you would find that you know, the payroll was run through them, the committee structure was run through them, they weren't allowed to own their own buildings, everything had to be signed off by the, the local authority. So Mrs. Thatcher is convinced, and she's convinced, again, because the polytechnics are business-focused, they're keen to expand, they're keen to 
to do what the government wants to do. But they also had the extra argument about the loony left. Because if there was something that we all know about the the, the way that uh, the Conservative government in the 80s was having to deal with things, they were so um, against the, the loony left running um, large uh, conurbations. And therefore, the, all the polytechnic directors had to say is, we could be so much better if... We weren't enthralled to all these people and their their anti-nuclear um, campaigning and their all of these kind of things. Just free us from this and we will do all of these kind of things. Whether they believe this or not, it was a really good uh, reason to get Margaret Thatcher behind them. So that's fine. And they were incorporated. They were allowed to, to run free. There's all sorts of weird things that happen as part of that because obviously um, some of the polytechnics get dealt quite a good hand. Um, they get to have the... Um, the countryside training centre that used to belong to the um, local authority, or they get dealt uh, the hand of you know the local authority giving them all the really crappy stuff um, that's going to need you know huge amounts of maintenance and, and upgrade. But but th- those kind of things come to a stop, and the the polytechnics get to be incorporated, and the colleges as well alongside them. There's a there's a discussion about how big you have to be and how much money, uh, and there's a kind of line drawn through the the sector as to who gets to be incorporated, and then have its own funding body, so they get looked after by the poly- it's a college's funding council, um, and that continues off for a couple of years. But then the next chunk comes after Mrs. Thatcher's left and John Major's come in, uh, and the discussion point comes about the next natural stage, which is, should we have one sector of higher education working together? I think that's probably coloured by the UFC finding it quite hard to make universities do what they're supposed to do, which was to expand cheaply. The polytechnics are quite keen to do that, and the idea of bringing the whole sector together uh, is clearly quite good. There are big concerns in government about academic drift, that sense that polytechnics are going to stop doing what they're good at, and there are documents which read just like the concerns that you'll read in in The Telegraph today about polytechnics running two academic courses doing research that they shouldn't be doing uh, and generally drifting from their original mission so there is a concern that they can do that uh, john major is assured by ken clark that though that will be fine we'll have lots of mechanisms in place uh, to do that um, but off they go then they take the decision that we will have one sector and we'll merge them all together so polytechnics get the opportunity to become universities we get hefke which then starts its uh, 25 year run um, and then we get one sector glued together um obviously there's a lots of discussions when that first comes together there's a great file uh, again about discussing how the funding model will work and how people will migrate to a single uh, cost um but the the sector sets off in in a relatively straightforward way but yeah that that initial thing of will there be parity of steam between vocational and academic forms of education uh, that's a concern that michael howard expresses uh, in the paperwork um is a is a key tension that I think we're still dealing with today, and one that probably the Conservative Party still fights about. So off off we go. Um, this new move towards the class of society, the idea that academic and vocational education would work together, and obviously what we've seen is is that development. Now there's an argument, and I think um, it's Simon Jenkins that makes it, is that the polytechnics win. Effectively, it's the polytechnic model much more than the the autonomous model of the universities that win out from that. Uh, but that's the that's the sector we get bequeathed in 1992. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, as we're recording, industrial action is kicking off across the UK in higher education. Richard, talk us through it. Yep. So today, Thursday, um, is the first day of the, of the sort of strike action um, that's continuing tomorrow and then on to Wednesday. We're up to 150 uh, universities, um, or staff at 150 universities are striking. And, and UCU's sort of nationwide mandate for action, which covers pensions, pay, and employment conditions. Um, but we're also seeing, I think, over, over the course of the month, strike action from Unison at 19 HE institutions with staff, including administrators, cleaners, library security and catering workers, as well as Unite members at 10 institutions in November. And of course, our sector has faced industrial action almost every year, I think, from since 2018. Um, so industrial relations, of course, within higher education has been poor for some time. Uh, but it's also, of course, a part of a wider trend in society at the moment where many different sectors are facing strikes for industrial action caused by the sort of challenges around high inflation. Um, so that sort of sets the context and it'll be interesting to hear everyone's views on on this. Of course, you know, as always, students are those stuck in the middle who are going to be most impacted by it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's a lot here. Smita, um, it's kind of a, a bit of a, a bit of a miserable winter for, for a lot of people as, as Richard was saying um it's difficult isn't it because not every university can afford to, to to kind of give the same level of of pay settlement and and you know obviously you know where we are with inflation and where the where the kind of national kind of bargaining ended up you know was 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 not great from a from a staff point of view but um i guess not you know not every university is in the same place there's a weird disconnect isn't there between um uh kind of the that that national kind of settlement and what happens at different different universities absolutely i think um again it feels like the sector because of other you know other policy uh considerations has moved to a place where national bargaining no longer feels like it can work for the reason that you've given everybody is in a very very different um position and the amount of volatility in the sector and financial uh, uh sort of instability is also so much greater as, as a general rule when you think that you know tuition fees have been frozen etc for a very long time and been eroded by um inflation over that period so i think something like uh, we know that you see are consulting about whether national pay bargaining is the way forward and you do wonder how long that can last and then what the effect of moving away from it would be because you, you know that could be quite profound couldn't it in terms of retaining staff attracting staff um what that means then for things like the 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 quality of the offer to students um the regulatory landscape it's so complicated and it's it's where everything is linked um and it's also just so depressing that we're now as, as richard said you know four years on from the first set of strikes and and the position seems to be getting more fractious rather than any kind of consensus being emerging or being built 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, Sunday, you know, there's an argument that says, um, um, you, you know, UCU's real fight here is with the government for, uh, for continuing to cut funding to higher education year on year by keeping the fee cap frozen and, and the kind of action is misplaced and, you know, they should be, they should be taking this, taking this to the government, not, not vice chancellors. So, yeah, this is a really fair argument to, uh, to be made. And I think that it speaks to the sort of complexity of the higher education sector and its funding model. So we, ha- we saw a similar sort of like, Mr. almost like arguably misdirection um during covid when student union officers um were like half of them were sort of like directing their requests for refunds uh, at their institution and half of them were sort of like approaching the government and saying that you know you need to look at like loan forgiveness or like something around like the payback payback because we haven't um had the had the student experience that we wanted um I think that it's really difficult uh, when we're talking about students as well, because I've actually spoken to a lot of student union officers this week. And one of the things that, you know, I was really keen to do was to get some student union officers uh, to, to speak to Wonky. But a lot of them are uh, understandably, one, nervous, because uh, as Richard said, it's such a fractured, fractious dispute and it's been going on for such a long time, you know. Uh, it's got to the point now where it's almost like an annual event, right? The the annual UCU strike. Um, but also because it's so complex and it's so difficult to understand, unless you're sort of, uh, you know, really, you've got a really, really firm grasp of, of pensions, of higher education funding system, um, it's almost like, it's almost difficult to comment on really. So um, I guess to, to cover this from the other angle, Richard, then, I mean, um, you know, the, the pay settlement was extremely tough. Um, the cost of living crisis is, um, is extremely bad at the moment. Um, and uh, people are very worried about winter to come. And there are significant issues with the USS pension scheme in particular. Um, you know, make the, the case for industrial action. Uh, well, that's interesting to make the case for industrial action. I think um, the strongest case that the union have has is how uh, is is the treatment of um, sort of junior academics in the system, the precariousy. And I think that they would receive a wide and, and politically wide ground set of support if they really honed in on that issue. And actually, I think that there'd be an open door to some extent within universities and senior management in the sector and working with government to how we can resolve this particular issue. The problem that I have got with this whole system is that the easiest thing to do on a podcast like this is to say both sides should sit around the table and negotiate and get come up with a settlement. And isn't it awful? But the fact is the union, uh, 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 you know, the academic community have elected a very hard left Marxist sort of trade union who believe in their sort of theory of change is not about negotiation. It's about all or nothing. It's about there are winners and there are losers in, in this and we're going to win all, all at all costs and they don't prioritize their asks there's a sort of lack of interest in compromise and collaboration there's a real failure to sort of recognize if you alluded to mark the sort of external environment and what's inside and what's outside of employers control i found it fascinating that in all the sort of commentary joe gage 
Joe Grady focuses on vice chancellors, the, their failure of leadership, and it's all down to them, is, is, is the quote that she, she says. But there's no pivot to government intervention on this whatsoever. And if you actually, you know, look at some of the other trade unions and read what they're saying or listen to what they're saying, you know, yes, they'll complain about management and leadership, but then they'll pivot and say, actually, you know, the conditions, the external environment, we need government support or government intervention to help resolve this. But she doesn't do that, which I find fascinating. Um, and, and also, you know, there's a real personalization of this campaign towards university administrators, managers and leaders. And within that sort of, you know, within that type of campaigning, I think it's very difficult to actually come up with a negotiated settlement and negotiate and compromise and come up with something which is at least viable for, for the foreseeable future and come up with a roadmap of how we tackle some of these really challenging issues which are often out, outside of employers' control because of the sort of funding constraints which they're in. Smita, as we've got you, I want to bring you back to this question of, of um, students and consumer rights and refunds that, that Sunday mentioned. This is kind of has been a, a perennial um Ever since, well, for industrial action um, in the past, and 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 also in COVID for for different reasons, can you just kind of just walk us through where we've got to with that issue and kind of who's responsible for what? Just because it, it is really confusing, isn't it? It absolutely is, and 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 where have we got to? The answer is probably not nearly as far as we need to get to have a real clear understanding of it. So the position is obviously we've had several rounds of industrial action. Um, the OIA has issued guidance about how it looks at complaints arising out of industrial action and where it might consider a remedy appropriate. Um, We've had threats of group litigation relating to industrial action. We obviously then had the whole COVID um, experience for students and that has also led to numerous complaints and threats of group action and now we've got another round of it. But at no point has this got anywhere near a court ruling on fairly central questions like is a national um, national industrial action, is that a force majeure event outside the reasonable control of universities and therefore something for which they can reasonably try to limit their liability to students? We haven't got any clarity on if there is a liability to students, how is that calculated? Um, the, the OIA have their own mechanism for, for calculating it, but that's not, it's not necessarily one that a court would adopt. Um, we don't even really know. I mean, we know in principle that for the vast majority of undergraduates, any rem, any sort of refund goes back to the student loan company rather than to them. Um, but, but that, you know, all these big issues are still unresolved. Um, so we haven't really moved that much further forward. But what we have now got is a cohort of students whose experience has been blighted first by COVID, possibly actually first by industrial action, then by COVID, and now by industrial action again. Um, so the arguments that we might have deployed in the past of, you know, this is affecting a small minority of um, students on a, on a, for a relatively small proportion of their courses is becoming a bit more questionable as well if it's different types of disruption over a period of time. So we really do need to see some you know, principles being well established just so that the sector can then start preparing um, in light of those. But I'm afraid from a legal perspective, we're no nearer those. Yeah, sorry, I just wanted to come in on a slightly different po- point on, on the pensions issue. And it just seems to me no sense that UK leads on this particular issue. And, and I, I really do think that it should be UCA that takes control of all of these issues from an, uh, from an employer side. You, you know, we need a body in, in UK 
So it's fully focused on representing our sector to the government, to business, to civil society, and to the public at large. And if if all the senior team there and the great people that work at UUK are really focused on sort of negotiating on 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 behalf of employers, um, there's a real opportunity cost in terms of what they're then able to do to to you know put forward the sector's position to government and others. And I, I really do think we need to separate those things out um, because because you know otherwise there's that real opportunity cost in terms of our you know of, of representation of our sector. Um, I think there's one thing I wanted to say. I wanted to pick up on what Richard was saying about prioritising the asks. Um, obviously that you know there are pensions pay working conditions and then other demands around sort of closing <clears throat> closing gender and uh, BAME pay gaps um and again i'm sure these are these are all really important issues um i remember but i do remember when the issues around like the sort of gender pay gap was coming out and i found that quite difficult to understand why that was being put in with you know issues like the pension issue or like casualized contracts because uh it's you know the pay gap is a that you know that's something that's that's ev- that most sectors are are sort of grappling with and can sometimes maybe be seen as beyond like the control of any sort of individual institution and also it was quite difficult to understand what the metrics would be on it like is it looking like do you see what i mean like like where like with one issue there are sort of like set material demands and then other issues were a little bit intangible um but i do think that when we're saying that you know ucu are not prioritizing their demands it's really important to understand uh the sort of relate like inner union relations that are going on like it's not a case of sort of the leadership of the the unions putting down everything that they can think of uh, to strike over it is um the reason that gender um pay gaps and issues affecting sort of people earlier in their academic career were were, were being sort of put down was because uh when the pension dispute was going on a lot of young mem- younger members or early members earlier in their career in the union strike like went on strike and voted for strike action in solidarity with their colleagues who were having their pensions in in their words um like sort of stolen from them so then when it came to these extra issues around you know casualized contracts for young members of staff gender pay gap a lot of the sort of like earlier career academics felt that they they were then being supported by the people that they supported so it's kind of this case of having a diverse union body with different issues affecting them and then obviously this sort of concept of solidarity well you supported me on my pension issue I'll support you on your casualized contract issue Um, and obviously from the outside that just looks like oh my goodness they're throwing everything on the table but um, it is there's a lot of sort of like union interpersonal union politics going on um, um, with that list it it isn't just a case of sort of putting everything on it so that's about it for this week remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today you'll find links in the show notes on walkie.com don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the walkie show via spotify acast apple or google podcasts or wherever else you listen and to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services. So thanks very much to Smeeta, Richard, Sunday and everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen behind the scenes. Until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.